Ken, if you were wanting to make sure that everybody who came after you uh, stuck only to your letters and writings and articles, wouldn't you be writing down a lot more stuff, Ken? I mean, I'm just yeah, saying. To quote, um, you know, to quote Mozart in that movie Amadeus, I'd be scribbling and bibbling and scribbling and bibbling all day long. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and uh, we are with the Coming Home Network. If you like what you're seeing, please subscribe or check us out at chnetwork.org, uh, especially if you're someone who has questions about the Catholic Church. Ken and I discussing some of the issues that uh, we sorted through on our way into the Catholic Church from our different traditions. Ken, what are we talking about today? Well, we've been talking about Sola Scriptura. And we're asking the question, is Sola Scriptura scriptural? Is Sola Scriptura, that the Bible is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, is this something that is actually taught in the New Testament? And what I'm trying to do here, Matt, in this section of our series here, um, and I'm, I'm hoping this will be helpful to other non-Catholic Christians who are curious to some degree, or looking at the Catholic faith, or are... Uh, at some point along the journey toward the church, this is a big issue, this is a foundational issue. And what I'm attempting to do here really is to sort of share, walk through the process of thought, the process of thinking that I went through and that led me um, some many years ago now to conclude that Sola Scriptura was not something that is taught in the New Testament. I began by looking at the practice of those earliest believers living during the time of the apostles and it wasn't that difficult to see that, at least at that stage, the church was not practicing, not practicing sola scriptura. For them, yeah. there was binding authority. Binding authority resided in, A, the inspired writings of the Old Testament, and the inspired writings of the New Testament as they were being written. B, the oral teaching of the apostles. This is all what we talked about last week. And then C, Authority resided in the ability of the apostles and the elders to meet in council, to debate, to settle disagreements, to define Christian doctrine, and to even issue, if if you will, um, decrees yeah. um, that they could uh, take around as a letter to all the churches. And I'm thinking, of course, of Acts chapter 15, verse 28, where they sent this letter out saying, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, the decision they came to, as far as they were concerned, was the, de the decision of the Holy Spirit. So to kind of sum that up just quickly, in other words, the earliest Christians you and I saw last week were not looking to the Bible alone to determine what they were to believe or how they were to live. They had the written tradition, Scripture. They had the oral tradition, the teaching of the apostles, what the apostles had taught them in the time that they had spent with them, founding the churches, establishing them. And they had a magisterium, if you will, as it existed at the time looks rather Catholic. It does, it does. Structure. And and somebody might say at this point, well, sure, it looks that way because the apostles themselves are alive, <laughs> right? Uh, because that's, you know, of course you'd listen to the apostles because the apostles are right there in front of you. When they die, you go with what they wrote. 
right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's that's the argument that I think a lot of people are working with. That that there's no way that you have to stick to something like solo scripture if you got an mm-hmm. actual apostle with you. But when the apostles die, then you know it's, it's start from scratch. Go with the Bible. You are exactly correct. You know, I mean, any thoughtful Protestant at this point is just going to say, well, obviously. Christians weren't practicing Sola Scriptura when you still have apostles with the authority of Jesus Christ walking around the earth with the ability to write inspired letters and all that. So yeah, and so what they would say, and what I said at the time too, was the question is the wrong question. The question we need to ask is not what was functioning as binding authority during the time when you have these apostles walking the earth. The, The important question is what ought to function as divine foundational authority for Christians living after that time. That is once the apostles are dead and gone to their yeah. reward. In other That's words, what kind of authority, what kind of authority structure does it look like the apostles are setting the early church up for? Amen. Yes. And you know, this makes sense to you. This makes sense to me. I think this would probably make sense to any non-Catholic listening. You know, that yeah, this is the question. You know, it it may be interesting to to note that during the time of the apostles, they had this three-legged stool, if you will, you know, written tradition, oral tradition, the decisions of the councils. But the main question is, what about afterward? Well, this made sense to me, Matt. And so the next step in my own journey, really, of thinking was I wanted to go back and reread the New Testament another time, asking a series of questions that again, had never, ever popped into my mind before. Que- Nor mine, by the way. Even after I read the ones that you said, I think maybe one of the five that you sent me, I was like, yeah, I thought of this. The rest of them, I'm like, well, even after I agreed with the Catholic Church teaching, I had to uh-huh. go back and rethink this question that I never asked in the first place. Yeah, one out of five, that's not bad. But yeah, it is a series of questions that I had never asked, and frankly, I don't know if I hardly ever hear anybody ask, but these were the questions. I wanted to go back and reread the New Testament and ask myself, what was the mindset of the apostles with respect to how they expected their teaching to be preserved in the church after their demise? Do they say anything about this? Do they talk about it? Do they give hints as to what they thought the structure of authority would be after they were gone? Um, Do they act like men who believe that once they've left the scene, sola scriptura is going to kick in? Do we see them preparing their churches for a time when what they had taught them face-to-face would no longer be really reliable anymore, it'd be just word of mouth and memory, um, do we see them preparing the churches for a time when they would no longer be able to meet in council and come out with a decree and say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us? Do we see them preparing the churches for Sola Scriptura? Yeah. That, and this those, is like, those are the questions. And with that, Ken, let's, let's look just at that first point that, that, you're, that you address. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't seem to act like people who wanted the scriptures to be the sole rule of faith, because if they were, Ken, if you were wanting to make sure that everybody who came after you uh, stuck only to your letters and writings and articles, wouldn't you be writing down a lot more stuff, Ken? I mean, I'm just yeah, saying. To quote, um, you know, to quote Mozart in that movie Amadeus, I'd be scribbling and biddling and scribbling and biddling all day long. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's point one. Yeah, that's point one. And it's an observation. The first observation, and I want to say quickly, I do not present this as a proof of anything, okay? What I do present this as is kind of an an oblique evidence of a particular kind of mindset. And that is, 
the apostles do not seem to have acted like men who were preparing the church for sola scriptura in the very fact that most of them never wrote anything. We only have three of the, well, out of the gospels that we have, I mean, you got Matthew, who's an apostle, or has an apostolic mm -hmm. source. Uh, mm -hmm. John does as well, and Luke and Mark aren't even in the Twelve. Right, and so what about the others? Now, someone could say, and so I want to make sure I cover the basis here, because I thought this too. Well, maybe all of the apostles did write. Maybe Nathaniel wrote, and Bartholomew wrote, and all the rest, Andrew. Maybe they wrote, and yet we just don't have what they wrote. And, and this is something that is possible, but I, I got to tell you, as I think about it, as I imagine this, it's hard for me to imagine, given the authority and the position, the, the prestige of the apostles, it's as hard for me to imagine that if Andrew wrote documents, that they would not have been treasured, and they would not have been preserved, and we would not have at least something. But as you say, of the original 12 apostles, we've got writings from three of them. We have Matthew, Peter, and John. The rest of them seem to have been content to travel, as missionaries to preach, to teach, to establish churches, to ordain leadership in those churches, to convey orally everything they wanted those churches to know and to believe and to practice, and then simply die without writing anything down. Yeah, and there's another aspect of this too, and this is one of the other points that you make in this article, is that you see in the case, especially of the epistles, where uh, John or Paul or, or whoever is referring to something that is not in their letters, that they told the yeah, church that yeah. they're writing to, and they're saying, remember what I told you when I was with you, yeah, right? Well, okay, let me bracket this to get it clear. Then. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah, the, yeah, this is a yeah, huge yeah. question, right? Okay, so the first observation, though, that I want to put out there and make sure it's clear, it was just an observation, and that is that the very fact that most of the apostles do not seem to have felt the need to write down, you know, what they were teaching— Kind of, kind of betrays a mindset that just doesn't exactly jive in my in my thinking with sola scriptura or with the idea that what they believed was that once they had you know gone off to their their reward the churches would be functioning on the Bible alone. But then the second observation, which is the one that you're kind of you know you're you're leaping into here, the second observation is that even when we look at those who did write, they don't seem to write again like men who were preparing for a future of sola scriptura. You know, they just don't. And John certainly didn't. I mean, he's the first that comes to mind. And this is, a, this is a point that I, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I want to pound it in, though, you know, with, with, with a 16-pound sledgehammer, because it's so important. In terms of instruction, okay, John writes his gospel, the life of Jesus. John writes the apocalypse. But in terms of his instruction to his spiritual children, in terms of epistles, what, what do we have from John? We got... We have Three little letters, Three right? little letters. And they're short. I mean, they're like three of the shortest books in the entire New Testament. Yeah, one of them's like five pages, and then two of them are single pages each. And now get this. In these letters, twice, not once, but twice, John says that he doesn't even like to write. He doesn't even want to write because he prefers face-to-face -face oral communication. He also now, says that, by the way, at the end of his gospel— Right, he's like, well, I mean, yeah, kind of, yeah. there's a lot of other stuff I could write here, but let's be like honest, it fill it fill every library in the world. So we're just going to leave it here for now. Listen to the passages: Second John one twelve. John says, "Though I have much to write to you, yeah, remind, reminds me of the end of the gospel. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink, but I hope to come to you 
see you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. And he says the same thing in 3 John. And just, just think of it again. Matt, I'll throw it to you. If you were an apostle, okay, and you have the authority of Jesus Christ, and you're founding churches, and you've got thousands of spiritual children under you now, if you believed that once you were gone, the sole infallible authority that all of these spiritual children would have would, be, would, would reside in what you had written or what you could collect from the other apostles, would you not have scrambled to write down clearly everything you were teaching them? I would have been clear as the daylight on baptism, on how to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I would be clear on how to receive a new believer into the body of believers so that there was no ambiguity. I would have been yeah. clear on a hundred other points that are simply... I mean, surely the the apostles either didn't think that these were big debates that were going to go on in the early church, or 100 or 200 years later, or... They were things that were so naturally part of the practice that they didn't feel they had to write them down, which is another thing that we'll get into at a later point. But either way, yeah, yeah. either way, which is sort of like the way we are with a Christmas tree. Let's say, you know, no father ever thinks, you know, hey, before I die, I better write down every year at Christmas, go out and get a tree and set it up. People I mean, are going to a hundred years from now think that I didn't brush my teeth because I can't remember any emails that I've sent to anybody that referred to, well, this morning I brushed my teeth. People are going to think that I was like a toothless Kentucky guy, and and that's that's not representing my home state well. <laughs> you do brush your teeth, though. I do. I, I mean, did. I, I think that's just, just this morning. Publicly. Just this morning. Can we? I, I, but, yeah. but me saying it orally, Ken, okay. doesn't do us any good. I have to write it down, or nobody will believe me. So there's John, and the only point I want to make here again is the way that John acts, the things that John says. You know. I have a lot to tell you. I have so much I want to tell you, and I do not want to write it down. It just doesn't be, be it, it doesn't betray a mindset that says, hey, listen, Scripture is the thing, and when I'm gone, my people are going to have Scripture and nothing else. It does not seem to have entered John's mind. Well, the okay. other person, though, that people want to talk yeah. about, though, is, well, yeah, that's John, but Paul is the teacher in the New Testament. Paul's the one who takes up you know, the, the better part of the New Testament, and he writes a lot of things down. Okay, so, so John, did, uh, John writes very little, so let's look at the guy who wrote more than anyone else in terms of epistles, and that's Paul. And yet, when I looked at Paul's writings, and I crawled through them, Matt, looking for hints of a mindset, I didn't find him writing in a way that would make one think he had Sola Scriptura in mind either. And let me give you a couple of examples. Here's an example, a little one. 1 Corinthians 15.29, Paul refers to something about, quote, baptisms being performed for the dead, baptisms for the dead, without explaining what he's talking about. I mean, he literally just mentions it, and he moves on. Apparently, Paul's readers in Corinth knew what he was talking about, and so he, he didn't feel the need to explain himself. It doesn't seem to have crossed Paul's mind that believers in the future— might want to know what he's talking about so that we don't have to have 17 New Testament scholars writing 17 monographs on what in the world is this deal with baptisms for the dead. It, it doesn't appear to have crossed Paul's mind. All he knows is that the Corinthians know what he's talking about, and so he can mention it and just move on to something else. It's at least vague enough for you and I to drop it and for the Mormons to think that they have to baptize Elvis from the grave. It's a, This is not meant... Is this be, one of the teachings? Well, yeah, this is Mormons Elvis? baptized. Well, I mean, oh. they baptized Elvis. He's one of the guys. They baptize a lot of people from that. This is why they run Ancestry.com yeah. is because they take that passage and extrapolate it from from Sola Scriptura. I did not know that. 
Yeah. You're, well, now you know. You need to meet with more Mormons. They come to my house all the time. They're great people. Super nice. Okay, let me give you a second example. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. This is a good one. In this passage, Paul refers to, and I'm quoting now, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the man of sin who is to be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I don't know about you, Matt, but I read um, The Late Great Planet Earth very early on in my evangelical life. I have the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon over on my bookshelf. This is important stuff, right? How many evangelical authors have made themselves as rich as Croesus himself, writing books speculating on who, who this man of sin is? Yeah, we used to call that pin the horns many. on the Antichrist. It was a little parlor game that we played in youth group, you know, which, oh, you which daily figure would be, which figure from the headlines. I think at one point it was Yasser Arafat, another time Ross Perot. Uh, I think Paul, if he was going to be Ross expecting Perot? people to, yeah, I know, we were, we were wrong on both counts. Uh, but, you know, this is another example of how if Paul really was expecting yeah. the, the things he wrote to be that we what we based everything on, would he have left something that big, just kind of well, hanging on the, the page? See, here's the key, is that he begins to speak of this man of sin and begins to describe him, but then right when... Any human being reading this letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, who did not belong to the church in Thessalonica, any reader in the future, right when we're leaning forward in our chairs and we're, want, we're wanting it's to know— It's a Scooby-Doo moment where they're going to take the mask us, and say— is it Saddam yeah. Hussein? Is it, you know, Hitler? Is it, you know, Ken Hensley? Right when we're at that point, what does Paul say? He says, and I quote, he says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So, you know, here's the thing. As I, as I read these, Matt, I realized what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15, what he's doing here, it's actually quite natural. Because when he wrote letters to these churches, he was writing to people that, you know, churches he had founded. And he's writing to people that he knew and he had spent a lot of time with. In fact, we find out from the New Testament that he spent three years in Ephesus. His letter to the Ephesians is, what, six pages in length? But he spent three years there. In fact, he says in the book of Acts that he was there teaching them night and day with tears for several years. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. And so my point is, Paul knows that his readers are familiar already with his teaching. They know what he teaches. And because of this, Paul can write like this. He, he doesn't feel the need to spell everything out in his letters. He can presuppose that his readers know what he's talking about and that they will fill in the gaps on their own. And because of that, he, he can write in this way, which could drive uh, theologians 2,000 years later nearly mad. Yeah, which brings up a point that I don't think that most Christians of any stripe, Protestant, Catholic, or otherwise, realize. The letters that St. Paul is writing or that John is writing or that Peter is writing are not meant to be detailed instructions of how to live the faith. They are. They start out with, like in Galatians, Paul starts out by saying, you stupid Galatians, I told you all these things, let me correct the ones you got wrong. Right? They're all corrective, <laughs> right? They're all yeah. applying to corrective situations, which implies that there was some kind of standard situation in place that is not detailed in, in any of these letters. That's, that, that's very good. In fact, there, the letters are what theologians will refer to as occasional documents. You read the letters, Matt, and they're almost every one of them is written to specific churches to deal with specific problems, to answer specific questions. 
um, they were not written to summarize in any kind of a broad way Christian doctrine, and they don't summarize it. And so when Paul talks about this man of sin, you know, and then he says to the Thessalonian believers, but, you know, you, you know about this. I, I, I told you all this when I was with you. We're sitting here now thinking, gee, thanks so much, Paul. Why didn't I mean, you tell I, us, man? Yeah, yeah. I wish I was a member of the Thessalonian church. I mean, it's good that they know because you told them when you were with them, but we don't know. And so do I have to buy the entire Left Behind series and read it cover to cover to find out this stuff that you could have mentioned in your letter? It would have been handy, Paul. I mean, come on. Well, you know, well but, go ahead. You know, I was going to say, but but here's the here's the real question. Then, with, with all this, do we have any clear indication from Paul or anybody else of what they wanted people to do or how they wanted people to transmit these teachings after they died? I mean, are they? Is there at yeah. least any example of that? The answer to your question is yes. There is at least I'll say there's one place, one case in the New Testament where an apostle, and it happens to be Paul, actually talks specifically about the the question of the preservation of his teaching after his death. I mean, isn't that, that's interesting. There is a place where an apostle talks about how his teaching will be preserved after he dies. And again, in this case, I did not see any evidence that he had Sola Scriptura in his mind. And what I'm talking about here is St. Paul, and I'm talking about St. Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter. Uh, by the way, the, the letters of uh, Paul to Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles. It's essentially, those are two letters uh, for to Timothy and one to Titus, where Paul is basically telling them how to run a church. So yeah. these are kind of going to yeah. be key yeah. for our understanding of this question. And in 2 Timothy, Paul appears to be writing what amounts to his farewell address to Timothy, who is his son in the faith and his successor in the ministry. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of his imminent departure from this world. Paul says, quote, For I am already on the point of being sacrificed, the time of my departure has come. So he's talking about the time when he's going to leave the world. And as you say, he's writing a pastoral epistle. He specifically wanted to teach Timothy how to run a church. And now he wants to talk about how his teaching will be preserved once he's gone. And now I, I encourage everyone listening to listen carefully to the words of St. Paul here. Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Now, what stands out to you, Matt? Well, there are a couple things that stand out. First of all, the truth that's been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit, which Paul later refers to he received by the laying on of hands, which sounds like a that sounds like ordination of the Catholic stripe, and actually of the of most denominational stripes would understand mm -hmm. ordination that way. But also here, uh, it says, "What you have heard from me before many witnesses." So this is not some secret that Paul told. It's something that Paul is known to be telling to all kinds of people, including Timothy. And then this other part, this is the key right there: "What you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men." who will be able to teach others also. Like, this is a clear succession plan. It's as clear of one as you're going to get in the Scriptures. And like you said a couple of weeks ago, like a smooth stone from David's <laughs> sling hitting Goliath on the forehead, this is something that really struck me, Matt, when I read this and I absorbed what he was saying, because Paul is preparing to leave the world, and 
he doesn't say anything about his writings. Right when I, as a sola scriptura, evangelical, would have thought that Paul would say, Timothy, first, first of all, get everything that I have written, get yourself down to Office Depot, or I don't know what you have out there on the East Coast. What is it? Staples, Office Depot. Get yourself down there and make thousands and thousands of copies right away and begin to pass them out to everyone you know, every believer you know. Instead, in fact, rather than saying anything about his writings without even breathing a word of it, instead he focuses on this pattern of sound words. I mean, that's interesting. It's like he's basically saying there's a pattern of teaching, Timothy. There's a body of doctrine that you have yeah, heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, this is not a Gnostic thing that is, you know, secretly passed down. You've heard it in the presence of many witnesses, this body of truth. And he says, Timothy, take this body of truth and guard it by the Holy Spirit that is in you. And then pass it on to other faithful men who will be able to do the same. And I take that to mean pass it on to other faithful men who in turn will guard what you are giving them by the Holy Spirit and pass it on, who will guard what is given them, entrusted to them, and will pass it on. What Paul seems to have believed, and this is kind of a, the, the mic drop moment for me, was the recognition what Paul seems to have believed was that the substance of his teaching would be preserved by the Holy Spirit in the church through a process at least very much akin to what we refer to as apostolic succession. Well, guess what? That's not Paul's unique idea. You know what it sounds like? Receive the Holy Spirit as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. This sounds exactly what Jesus was saying to the apostles in the upper room right after the resurrection. Exactly. I mean, it's pretty consistent. It is consistent, and we're going to come back to that whole subject. In fact, a question that I want to begin next week with is the question, um, I mean, at the beginning is, well, why, why, why did Paul think this way? Why, why do the apostles seem to have believed that the substance of their doctrine would be preserved in the church by the Holy Spirit through the apostolic succession instead of thinking that they needed to very carefully summarize their doctrinal beliefs. Um, anyway, we're going to touch on that next week. But let me kind of bring this to a conclusion of sorts. What Protestantism essentially says, Matt, and what I said for many, many, many years, what Protestantism essentially says is that while sola scriptura might not have been the practice of the earliest Christians living during the time of the apostles, it certainly became the practice of Christians once the apostles had left this world. Which is what you believed as a Baptist, is which what I believed as a Nazarene and a free Methodist and everything else. That's what and we what, believed. Yeah, and what Protestant scholars Geisler and McKenzie summarize again as, as this, the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else is all that is needed for faith and practice. So this is what I held, this is what you held for so many years, and yet, when I examined the writings of the apostles, they just didn't seem like men who were thinking this way. The, I mean, John, Paul, all of them, they seemed to have believed that their teaching would be preserved somehow in the church. And of course, I, I do want to mention this, of course their writings would bear witness to what they were teaching. And that's how I see it now. Their writings, occasional documents written to these churches to solve problems, they bore witness to what they were teaching. But the scriptures 
their, their writings, they don't conceive of their writings as functioning alone outside the context of the church and what was known in the church and what was taught to the church, which I find very interesting, Matt, because this is precisely how the early church fathers seem to have understood things. There is one passage in St. Irenaeus from the second century where he basically says that just like a rich man takes his money, and I, I know you're familiar with this. What, the rich man part? Not, well, well, you know, work, so, we work for the church, but I get this part. <laughs> Irenaeus says, and this is second century, just like a rich man takes his money and deposits it in the bank so that he can go and withdraw it whenever he needs it, he says, so the apostles deposited their teaching in the church, and anyone who wishes to know the truth can go to the church and can draw it out. It's an amazing image that he gives there. And then there's the third century Origen who put it just like this. I just want to quote this because it's so blunt. This is what Origen in the third century said. The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles, and it remains in the churches to this present time. That alone is to be believed as truth, which in no way is at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. Well, that sounds like, well, it's some weird Catholic archaic brotherhood, right? Except, Ken, when you were a Baptist pastor, were you ever in a situation, or did you know any fellow guys from seminary or colleagues in the pastorate who had in mind who they wanted to take over the pulpit when they left, and they were preparing them for that? Or were you? Did you ever know one who know someone? Because this is this mm-hmm. is the case in certain congregations. Certain congregations understand this that you know it's not just about this particular person's gifts and talents. There's a body of teaching and of practice and tradition here that needs the next guy needs to understand. Right? We yeah. we, we we treat it that way in our own churches. We treated I treated it that way as a Protestant. We wanted there to be a continuity. Why wouldn't yeah. the early church have wanted that? They they would have. And and, and as you're saying this, I'm I'm just thinking the only problem and this is a problem that I began to feel acutely, is that the Baptist minister is forming his associate in Baptist tradition and theology, and the Presbyterian pastor is forming his you know, apprentice in Presbyterian theology, and the Nazarene doing the same, and the Methodist doing the same, and the Seventh-day, all the way down. And yet, when we go back to the beginning, I guess that the question is going to be, and this is something we have to, there's so much more we have to talk about, but, but yeah, they're doing the same thing. But the question is, is what they are teaching the apostolic faith or simply their own? And this is, uh, you know, a conversation that I think you and I have both gotten in with various people over, you know, the past several weeks. What does it mean to be apostolic? And that's a question for its own other topic. But if apostolic yeah. just means I think that I'm going to teach what I see the apostles teaching on the pages of Scripture, then you run into the same problem with sola scriptura and Bible interpretation anyway, which means apostolic means whatever I sense that it means based on how I feel about my faith. But if you think that yeah. apostolic means that this guy passed it on to somebody who passed it on to somebody else, as we read in Paul's letter to Timothy, mm-hmm. then you got to say, all right, let's trace the bloodline. Yeah, and you're, what you just said is reminding me of, of a quotation from John Calvin that I can kind of paraphrase, where he says at one time, he says, that uh, what is to be believed— Okay, um, what he basically says, whatever councils teach and whatever the early fathers say, they are of authority only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. And Which you, means you know, my interpretation I, of the word, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> I remember when I first read that, that I thought, well, that sounds exactly right. And then the more I chewed on it, what Calvin is actually saying is, you know, whatever councils have decided and whatever the fathers say, it's of authority only insofar as 
I have decided that what they're saying fits with what I decide the word is saying, you know. Okay, but anyway, we've got to move on. And so here's a question, though, and you know, that, that comes back to us. after. Is the this the cliffhanger? Do we get to have a cliffhanger on this, on well, this episode? I'm trying every week to come up with something. But listen, I mean, th- this is like 24. You saw that show, 24? Oh, yeah, that's this my, is the, the clock no, is that's ticking. That's my model. That's my model. No, okay, we've seen that the practice of the earliest Christians was not sola scriptura. Now we've seen that the apostles don't even give a hint in their New Testament writings that they are thinking about sola scriptura. But what I would have said at the time and what Protestants will say, non-Catholics of all stripes will say, is what about those passages in the New Testament, though, Matt, Ken? What about those passages that Protestant scholars cite as teaching or at least strongly implying sola scriptura? You haven't touched on those passages yet. And that's where we're going to come oh, back but, to Oh, but next we week. will. Well, we're going to got to jump into that next yeah. week. Well, this is why, you know, we try and keep these bite-sized, about a half an hour or so, um, and, and we like to leave people hanging. But we don't want to leave all the stones unturned. Uh, I mean, we want to come back to some of these topics, and, and we're going to continue uh, next time around with more on Sola Scriptura and kind of the logical steps that you and I both took, uh, you especially, uh, in regard to this question. Um, in the meantime, though, if you like what you're hearing, or if you're intrigued by what you're hearing, you don't even have to like it. You can subscribe anyway and at least be part of the conversation. Comment uh, on this video. You don't even have to want to subscribe. You just need to do it. You just yes, it's 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 an ordinance, right? Uh, so uh, again, <laughs> chnetwork.org ch as well if you want to come see. Uh, especially if you're in the middle of a, a search right now and just want to want to kind of talk it out with somebody who's also thought these same questions mm-hmm. through. Ken, always a pleasure. There's never enough time. We'll talk to you next time around. Goodbye. Thank you.